Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Good morning. Good morning, church. It is so good to see you as always. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. Really, really glad to be together this morning. So it's springtime. It's April. It was a pretty nice morning when I got here. I don't know if it's raining now. But, uh, you know, on, on such a high note, on a nice warm day uh, coming into April, uh, you know, I'm going to actually turn a corner and ask you kind of like a morbid question just to get us started a little bit, which is this. Have you ever thought about if you knew what your last words were going to be, what it is that you would say? Like if you could plan out your last words, what would you say? You know, some famous folks in history have said some really interesting things. So this guy, Sir Isaac Newton, he's, you know, English mathematician, he's a a physicist, an astronomer, he's a theologian, he's an author, like one of the the smartest people in human history. He says this uh, as his last words that are recorded. He says, I don't know what it may seem to the world, but as to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then in finding a smoother pebble or prettier shell than the ordinary, whilst the the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. I mean, I read that and I'm like, really, Isaac? You, you You helped us understand like the laws of gravity and have given us every, you know, fundamental idea of physics that there is, but okay, that, that's fine. If that's how he feels, then, then that's how he feels. Then there's this guy, Leonardo da Vinci, right? He, he painted the Mona Lisa, one of, one of the most famous and beautiful pieces of artwork in, in history, and he says this. He says, I've offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. I don't know, Leo. That sounds like a humble brag, doesn't it? That's all right, though. I don't know if you know the story of John Adams. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson had this fierce rivalry. John Adams, our second president uh, of the United States of America, and Thomas Jefferson was his vice president, even though they were arch rivals. Because at that time, uh, you know, the vice president would be the person who had the second most amount of votes. So now you've got this president and this vice president. They lived their entire lives, their entire political careers as arch rivals. And John Adams actually dies on July 4th, exactly 50 years after the Declaration of Independence is signed in 1826. And on his deathbed, he's still thinking about his rivalry with Thomas Jefferson. And he realizes that Thomas Jefferson is going to have outlived him. So he says, Jefferson lives, as his last words. It actually turns out, though, Thomas Jefferson died the same day, just a few hours earlier. And uh, John Adams didn't know it. So that's kind of a bummer. But, but that happened. Here, here, here's the last one. This is my favorite. This is Buddy Rich. I'm a drummer. Buddy Rich, arguably one of the greatest drummers of all times, of all time. Unfortunately, he passed away after some surgery in 1987. But before he went in to that surgery, a nurse asked him, is there anything that you can't take? And these were his last recorded words. Yeah, country music. Yeah, right? Yeah, give me some applause over there. Listen, all of these quotes were informed by the story in which these people lived. What they understood about life and what they understood about their own existence and what it all means. 
A philosopher named Alistair, Alistair McIntyre asked this. He says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? An author that I like, Peter Hughes, he wrote this great book called All Things New. He framed it more simply like this. He said, the story you live in is the story you live out. The story you live in is the story you live out. You know, everything that Jesus said and did was important. But as Jesus was coming towards the end of his time here on earth, he said some particularly important things. And, and it is good and right for our ears to perk up and listen a little bit more closely to what it is that Jesus was saying in the final hours before he goes to the cross. For sure, his disciples' ears did perk up, and they wanted to listen a little more carefully to what it was that he was saying. Because there was such anticipation in the final days of, of his time here on earth. And as we go into Holy Week and as we celebrate Easter as a church, there's such anticipation that goes along with Easter because there's a story that's unfolding. So in the final days of Jesus' life, Jesus is talking about how he will soon have to leave his disciples. And they're all kinds of confused. And they're wondering, I mean, like, they don't even know what to do with themselves. Jesus asks them to stay up and pray with him, and they fall asleep. And he says that this new kingdom that he's going to bring about is not going to come by violence. But instead, you know, his disciples take out a sword and try to defend Jesus by, by cutting one of the Roman soldiers in the face. You know, uh, just a few hours after that, one of Jesus' followers denies that they even ever knew him after all they had seen. And just a few hours after that, Jesus would be, he'd be arrested. He'd be convicted without a fair trial. And he'd be sent to a cross to be crucified. Taking upon himself our guilt and our shame and all that we deserve. And he'd be buried. And all of creation would wait. There's this song that we sing that says, all of heaven held its breath, wondering what's going to happen next. And on the morning of the third day, a stone would be rolled away and, and the angels would stand in awe at what was about to happen because Jesus would rise from the grave and, and claim victory over the guilt and the shame and, and bestow new life upon everyone that that calls him their savior, that puts their faith in him. And be the first human over whom death doesn't have the last word and makes that possible for all of us. And then that story actually continues. As remarkable as that story is, it actually continues because from there, he'd send us out to continue his story, to renew his world until he returns to finish what he started. What he continues through us. And the story of this Jesus is one of his coming and his remaining here and his going and his placing his presence upon us until he comes again. And that's the reason why we're in this little mini-series going into Easter called Here and There because it's a story about death and life. It's a story about darkness that's overcome by light. 
and that is a world that is being restored. And in Jesus' final hours, much just right before the story that I just shared with you, Jesus prays a prayer in John chapter 17, which is where we're going to kind of camp out this morning. And what he does is he inserts us into that story, and he does it as he prays to the Father. Let's take a look together what it says in John chapter 17, verse 13. Jesus is praying and he says, Father, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Jesus is praying here. He's praying to the Father for his followers. Not that they'd be plucked out of this story, but in fact, he inserts them, his disciples, into this story. Who are his disciples? Those who have been obedient and chosen to say, yes, yes, Jesus, we believe that you are who you say you are. So who is he praying for here? He is praying for us. He is praying for this renewed family that lives right here in this moment that we would be, uh, that we would understand and, and, and recognize that we are invited into his story because the story you live in is the story that you live out. And so Jesus' prayer for us in John chapter 17 speaks into this story. He prays for us, desi desiring that we would be sent with joy that we would be sent realizing that there is suffering and there's this really complex relationship between joy and suffering that we're going to unpack in a few minutes and that we are sent with power. So we're going to unpack those three things quickly this morning that we are sent with joy, we are sent with suffering, and we are sent with power. Let's get into it. First, we are sent with joy. Starts right like this in verse 13. Look at what he says here. He says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. So what is this full measure of joy that Jesus is talking about here? What is it that brought Jesus joy? Well, in chapter 17, he is praying. But before that, he has this really important conversation with his disciples. It's a famous um, teaching called the Upper Room Discourse. So just a couple of pages back in your Bible in chapter uh, 15, Jesus said this to his disciples. He says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made complete. See what he's getting at here? He says, as the Father has loved me, in the same way the Father has loved me, I have loved you. So what is it that he was experiencing? Jesus being the embodiment of the Father's love. What is that love? It's a love marked by generosity, a love marked by, by patience, by compassion, a love marked by, by empathy, by sacrifice. And Jesus's joy is being loved by the Father and loving us with that very same love. 
the love of the Father in him and through him and to you and to me. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So in that love, in that love that gives, that receives and gives, we can stop searching for what true love actually is, for what it is that we're longing for. But our, our, our joy often remains incomplete, and I think it's partly because we are still searching for that perfect love. We know this to be true, don't we, friends? For those of us who are married, we know how, how difficult it is for us to be able to love our spouse well and to be loved by them well. Uh, you know, I'll be honest with you. My wife Sherry and I, we have had like a rough couple of weeks in our marriage. And we had to have an incredibly difficult conversation sitting on the couch earlier this week. And I share this with, with her permission, of course where we had to look each other in the eye and, and say and share with each other the ways in which like, we were just feeling so unseen by the other. And it was causing us to feel unloved. And we had to do the hard work in that uncomfortable moment to join hands and decide to take one step after another toward God and toward each other. Because that search for this type of love that Jesus is describing, this generous, patient, compassionate, empathetic love, is something that we were all longing for. And Jesus' joy is in receiving and giving that love away so that creation that he loves might share in the wholeness of the Father's love. That's the reason why. So he says, I'm coming to you now and he says, I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of that joy that's rooted in that kind of love within them. And this, this idea of it being within them is like this idea. You ever been to the Niagara Falls? Anybody ever been Niagara Falls? Yeah, if you haven't gone, you should go. I mean, it's not just like a trip for old people. Like, you know, I'm in the prime of my life and I just, you know, come on, right? And I just like stand there and I just stare at the Niagara Falls and I'm like, and the thing that comes to mind is that this thing just keeps on flowing. I'm going to drive away, I'm going to go to sleep, and it just keeps on flowing. This is the concept that you see in this, uh, in this um, joy that is within us. It is like, it is so connected to the source that it just keeps on flowing and flowing again. It's connected to the source. And we see that there is nothing that Jesus wouldn't do to accomplish that joy springing and welling up within us. In Hebrews chapter 2, there's this famous verse that says, For the joy set before me, uh, for the joy set before him, he, Jesus, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father, uh, uh, at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, there's something a little bit confusing about this as he's talking about joy. He says, for the joy set before me, he endured the cross. He endured shame. So he did those things, all of that hardship for joy. There's something confusing about this because there seems to be some type of unusual relationship between joy and suffering in the story that Jesus is unfolding here. So what does it mean then that we are sent 
with joy, but we are also sent with suffering. What is this complex relationship that exists between the two? Well, let's take a look at it together. We are sent with suffering. Take a look at verse 14. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. So he starts with this idea that he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. That word hated is this idea of being despised and, and cast out. Has anyone ever felt like hated by someone? You know, what goes along with that is this, this sense, it's very, it's challenging, it's painful, it's hurtful. It brings, about, it brings about sadness and sorrow and hardship. And Jesus was highly aware of the fact that that suffering, that he knew was coming for him, was also coming for all of us. Because the world is broken, and that is the reality of the existence that we're in. And the scriptures are full of this realization and full of this kind of confusing interplay between joy and suffering. In, in James chapter 1, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind. Whenever you face trouble, consider it pure joy. Well, that doesn't quite make sense, right? In, uh, in Romans chapter 8, he says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Wait a minute. That doesn't quite make sense. What is this relationship about? First Peter chapter 4. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ that you may be over what? Joyed. Overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And then Jesus, in this conversation that he has with the disciples right before this prayer that we're focusing on in chapter 16, he makes this audacious statement and promise to his disciples. He says, I have told you these things, these confusing things about how I'm going to go away from you, but I'm going to return and I'm going to send you. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. You will have suffering. You will have hardship. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You know, I, I think I've told you, like my Greek professor would always say that, you know, verbs are where the Greek language comes alive. And this is one of those, one of those situations because that word overcome is a great word that is in a tense that is both present and future. So in a way, he's saying, I am overcoming the world right now, and I will continue to overcome the world in, in the future. But even still, the disciples must have been like, what? Like, like you're saying you're leaving and that you're coming back and you're guaranteeing us that there's going to be trouble and there's going to be hardship and suffering. It's like, why would we want to be characters in that particular story? And yet he is inviting us, the scriptures are inviting us to see suffering and joy a bit differently. You know, in your Bibles, there's a book of poetry called the Psalms. And if you've read through them, You've probably seen this tension that exists, this emotional journey of navigating suffering and joy. Do you ever feel that when you read it? Two-thirds of the Psalms are lament, calling out to God. But there's also this tension between this joy that they're living. What is that about? You know, in Psalm 126, this is written after God's people had been in exile in Babylon, in Babylon and they're coming back to their homeland. 
And the beginning of this psalm is paraphrased by Eugene Peterson in the message like this. They're coming back and they're celebrating. And they're saying, when the Lord brought back his exiles to Jerusalem, it was, it was like a dream. We were filled with laughter and we sang for joy. And the other nations said, what amazing things the Lord has done for them. Yes, the Lord has done amazing things for us. What joy. Of course, they're celebrating because they're coming home from exile. But the verses right after that, what follows that in this exact psalm in verses 5 and 6 is this. It says, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seeds to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Do you see what this is getting at? I love this metaphor. Because those who sow with tears will reap songs of joy as what comes out of it. It's, it's breaking down this relationship where there's joy over here and there's suffering over here. But in fact, it's saying that in God's economy, that joy and suffering exist in the same space. That that tear that trickles down your, your cheek and in this metaphor lands in that dirt. That it's not that okay, well, then that kind of goes away and then something else comes up. From that very seed that is sown, that tear that went down, that joy comes up. Because we try to avoid suffering and avoid hardship and, and maybe put it over there and try to find joy over here. But suffering and joy are inextricable. From that place of hardship, from that place of sorrow is the very place where joy comes in. That's the promise in the good news of the gospel. That's the promise of the scriptures. That when we sow, those tears produce joy. Jesus knows this, and this is the story that he's telling. This is why he's, he's interplaying this joy and this suffering together. The story that Jesus is telling, and he's praying for his followers. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them. From the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Jesus prays for protection, not for removal altogether. He's praying for protection that though we may bend, we will not break. He's praying that, yes, though suffering and hardship might come, that where that tear falls, that right in that spot, what would grow from it is joy. He's praying that we would. We would not be removed from this world, but that we would continue his story. Because the cross is marked by both unthinkable pain and suffering and unimaginable joy. That is the beauty and the goodness of Easter. That is the beauty and the goodness of this, these next two weeks that we're going to be celebrating together. We are sent with suffering that yields joy. You know, this is a reality in our world today. I mean, um, you know, over the last two years, the last two years have been rough, you know? And now I'm feeling like, you know, I guess COVID's not over, you know? There's like another strain and, you know, having friends that are testing positive. In the last two years, um, for every 800 positive cases, the number of Google searches for prayer or for where is God tripled. For every 800 cases, the number of searches tripled. And it seems that people who don't follow God, who are not churched, are reaching out and they're saying, where is God? And he's drawing them to seek him out. And the statistics are showing that in the same number, those who are inside the church are asking the same question in the last two years, where is God? 
and they're walking away from him, and they're leaving his family. In the same number that two people are asking, where is God? And half of them are walking toward him and half of them are walking away. And most of the people walking away are the ones that are already inside this family. Why is that? It's because there's something about this, this experience where we love to be on the mountaintop, but we struggle with knowing what to do with the fact that there is suffering and there is hardship because we think they're mutually exclusive. But the cross is marked by suffering and the cross is marked by joy because suffering and sorrow and joy exist in the same space. If we would, if we would just accept this invitation to start to see that a little differently and see that more clearly. We're part of this story where suffering exists because the world is broken, but joy comes from that very place because the one who is in me is greater than the one who is in the world. And that greatness is the power with which Jesus sends us and prays for us. Let's take a look at verse 17. We'll close with this. We are sent with power. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. You sent me into the world and I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. It's hard to, to wrap our heads around this view of joy and suffering, right? It feels, like, it feels like a moving target, because joy and suffering feel like they're such different things for us. And it feels like this moving target. And what Jesus is doing here as he's praying this, he's praying that God would reshape and reform our hearts around this objective truth. He says, your word is truth. That the scriptures, the good news about Jesus, every word that is contained in your Bibles from the first page of Genesis to the last page, page of Revelation is truth. It is the objective around which we can, we can um, see everything else more clearly. And John chapter 1 talks about how Jesus himself is the embodiment of that truth. The word became flesh. Perfect truth became flesh. And here we are as a community of people that are now invited to gather around, to be a community that is centered around an objective truth of Jesus and his love and his goodness and his generosity and love and compassion and grace toward us. Look at what he says. He says, in the same way that you sent me, I have sent them in the world. So how is it that Jesus was sent into the world by the Father. How was that? He was sent with power. He was sent with authority. He was sent with God's perfect character upon him that blessed everyone that he met and everything that he touched. And he created spaces of a, of the, of a world, a kingdom that he intended. He gathered around 12 people and created a, a family. And everyone else that he would touch would gather around him. And people would follow him around. And he was creating these spaces of this renewed world that existed in the way that he intended for it to exist all along. And now he sends us as witnesses in just the same way. Just as Jesus said, Father, just as you sent me, now I sent them. So you sent me with that kind of power to have that kind of impact. And now I send them, I send you and me, this family right here, I send them with that kind of power to have that kind of impact. What does that mean? That means that we are ambassadors 
We, are, we, we have the authority, we have the uh, empowerment from God himself to be him, his ambassadors. That's the reason why this famous verse um, in 2 Corinthians, we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Who is God making his appeal through? Us. He is doing this through us, imploring people on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. So if we are ambassadors armed with his power and his authority, well, then what that makes this place is an embassy. Think about the implications of that. If you go into the city and you go into like the French embassy, when you, step, when you set foot in there, you're, you're effectively in France for a minute, even though you're in the middle of Manhattan, right? And everything that is in that place is French. And that is their territory, and if we are here as ambassadors of Christ, empowered and sent with his power, then this place and this gathering and this family right here is an embassy. This is a little taste, a little microcosm of the world that God intends and desires to bring about, what he is renewing. This is a community not marked by, by greed and selfishness, but by, by, marked by generosity and marked by love and, and marked by compassion. And Jesus goes on to pray for the people who will come to know him through these ambassadors, through these witnesses. And if you don't follow Jesus yet, and you're here in this room, we are so glad you're here. Because part of what Jesus prays right after this prayer that we just read together is that he prays for you. That you, just by being welcomed into this embassy, surrounded by Jesus' ambassadors, that you would see that this is what you were created for too that you were created to be known and to know others, that you are known and loved deeply by God, and, and that you are invited to live and step into the fullness of who he created you to be. This is the amazing story that we are invited to, into, friends, that, that Jesus' prayer speaks to his desire that we would continue the story of God's kingdom, the one that started with his being born in a manger that we celebrate at, at Christmas and the life that he lived and, and the, 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 the death that he died and the, the, the excruciating nature of these hours leading up to a Friday that seemed anything but good. And the fact that he died on a cross and he bore upon himself our shame and our guilt and that he rose again and the angel stood in awe that he would do this for you and for me, for this humanity, this, this creation that he loves so deeply, so richly. And then he calls us to continue that story. It is not over. He inserts us into it to build his renewed world on earth as it is in heaven, here at Beacon Church as it is in heaven, on Long Island as it is in heaven, in New York as it is in heaven, in all the world, in every corner of the globe as it is in heaven. That is what he is doing through you. That is no small thing. So the question really is, church, what story are we living in? Have, are we relegating ourselves to a small story that is marked by our own comfort and our own circle and how it is that I can, I can establish myself above everything else? Be we were built for a larger, greater story than that. And whether you follow Jesus or not, that is deep within us. The, the, the fact that we were created for a larger story 
than that. That's the reason why. If you ask one of those five-year-olds that are um, over in Kids Quest, ask them what they want to be when they grow up, invariably they're all going to say astronaut, explorer. No one's going to say, you know, lawyer that sits behind a desk. But that's only because they don't know yet. That, you know, that also is very redemptive work. It can be. All right. But deep within them is this idea that they were built for something more that they were built, they were created as part of God's expansive story of what it is that he's doing. And my prayer and my hope is that as we start to see some of these things differently, as we start to see joy and see suffering and see the power with which we are sent differently, that we would understand and appreciate that you're not just an engineer or a plumber or a barista or a homemaker or whatever it is. That you are not just those things. That you are, in fact, an ambassador that is part of this larger story that is bringing about God's renewed world. And Jesus, the Son of God, is praying for you. And he is praying for me to that end. That we would lean into that more richly. That we are sent with joy. We are sent with suffering. And those two things are inextricable. The cross shows us that. And we are sent with power. And church, you'll hear me say this over and over again because I believe it in the, the deepest part of my heart. That there is no limit to the potential of what God can do through you and through me and through this family as ambassadors for Christ. As ones that are sent with joy, ones that are sent suffering and ones that are sent with power let's pray together so father we are just so grateful for your invitation to us to step into this story god thank you that you decided not to just write off this human experiment and say, you know what, this is not worth it. But that you look at us with such love, with such compassion, that it is your joy to suffer so that we can experience joy. And that those two things are just intertwined together, and, and on this side of eternity, we will continue to experience suffering, but that joy comes from that same space, because joy comes in the morning when you, when you promised it. That in this world, we will have trouble, but you are overcoming the world and will overcome the world. And that is the expansive story that we're invited to be a part of, God. What a joy it is. God, would you cause us to see you more clearly and see the breadth and the expanse of this story, that as we go back to our, our classrooms and our workplaces, um, even as we spend some time together this afternoon with our families or whatever it might be, God, that we would see more clearly that you have invited us to be a part of your story, of this larger story that you are unfolding, where you are the one who came to say, I'm making all things new. And you're doing it through new people, in new families, in new places like this love you. We thank you. We're, we're grateful to you and excited for what you are going to do in the days to come in Jesus' name. Amen. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.